you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you who are here with us in person. want to welcome those of you who are joining us online, and just know that whether you're live in person, live online, whether you're watching or listening later throughout the week, that you are prayed for, you're cared for, you are loved before you walked in or before you turned on your screen. And so as we uh, conclude our series this morning, looking at the lost parables of Jesus found in Luke 15, I just want to um, take a moment to uh, just acknowledge and, and uh, express gratitude that uh, Philip Cross did a fantastic job uh, last week as we looked at the lost coin um, and the idea that what we value determines our diligence and recognizing that when something is valuable to us, we ought to be diligent, not haphazard, but diligently uh, being able to search for that. And in case you weren't here uh, last week, uh, he showed a picture of himself on the beach. I have it here. No, I'm, I'm not going to do that to him. Um, we, but no, it was one of those where just that idea of searching for something diligently and how, beautiful, uh, how beautifully done that was. And the week before that, we talked about this idea that when we're lost, it means that we are not just misplaced, like I lost my keys or I lost my cell phone, but this idea of being utterly without hope. And how, uh, for those of us who know and love Christ, we are called to go and to seek the lost and to rejoice and to celebrate with the found. And so as we conclude this series and conclude this sermon today, we're going to be in Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. And so you can turn there, if you like, in the Bible um, app, if you brought that, in your own Bible, or if you um, don't, didn't bring a Bible there are Bibles in the seat racks in front of you. Uh, often I will have the scripture on the screen with me because there's a larger chunk of scripture today. I will put the reference that we're studying um, and then I'll read the passages, but the scripture itself won't be on the screen. So I invite you to follow along by opening up your Bible and be able to join us that way. And if you're watching online, there's a Bible tab at the top of your screen that you can join us with as well. Now, kind of as we work through that, I wanted to see if any of you have ever had a time like I had just a couple weeks ago. Um, we had gone out of town briefly. Um, have you ever done that? No, that's not the point. Um, <laughs> we went out of town briefly, and we had our dog uh, go to a dog sitter. And when, I first, when we first moved here, uh, February of 2018, I remember that um, I had um, the Waze app for, for maps open all the time because I wanted to know where I was. Philip last week mentioned the TomTom, which I never had, but I did print out directions on MapQuest. And so I would have like all these different papers and, and follow that along. So if there's any construction, you had no other way to get there. So you just had to learn with that. Um, some of you might still use like AAA maps and like, like to unfold it and fold it. I just wasn't good at folding it back up. So I'm like, ah, I'm not going to use that anymore. But so when I first got here, I remember I would always have the app going. And so there'd be times, if I may confess, where streets were a little confusing to me here. First off, I love that Poway specifically. Like every um, address number has five numbers. I'm like, because we're all very fancy here. We we can't just do four. But then I remember like when I'd be driving through like 4S and there'd be a part where like I'm on a street called Twin Peaks so then I go to 4S, and I'm on a street called Camino del Norte. And then I'm getting to 4S, and then I'm on a street called Camino del Sur. And I haven't gone anywhere. I'm still on the same street. And I remember just thinking to myself, how is it possible that one street can be called Road of the North, and the next one can be called Road of the South, and it's the same road? I'm like, I don't understand how this works. Now, 
after a while, one of the ways I knew that I felt like I was home here was when I'd be like, I can get somewhere without being lost. And so I would not use the app, and I would just be like, okay, I'm pretty sure this windy road turns into that windy road, and everything in this area specifically has a Bernardo in it somewhere for some reason. And so, you know, trying to figure it all out, but I'm like, I knew how to get somewhere, and I was like, I'm, I'm home now. I feel like I'm not lost all the time. Except for the times when sometimes our overconfidence in that we think we know the way home means that it's very easy for us to get lost because we're not willing to ask for help. I, when we were dropping off our dog, I picked him up um, after our trip. It was over in an area. I'm like, I know this, I know this area pretty well. I just need to go uh, south on Bernardo Drive, because there's a Bernardo, and then I need to make a left and go east on um, RB Road in order to get on the freeway. So I'm like, oh, cool. Like, it was kind of back in the area, so I was pretty sure I knew which direction to go. And I'm turning, and then I'm going there, and I'm going on Bernardo Drive. I'm like, okay, I'll see Camino del Norte, or excuse me, I'll see um, RB Road really soon. And all of a sudden, I'm just kind of in my own thoughts, and all of a sudden, I'm driving, I'm like, this really shouldn't be this far. It's like the first big light, if I've done this correctly. And I keep driving, I keep driving, and I saw this sign that said, Bienvenidos a Mexico. No, I'm just kidding, I didn't go that far. <laughs> but it was this idea, I realized after a while, I, I should probably pull over, I should probably find out where I am, because it was dark out, and I was so excited to see my dog, and, all, and I'm like, I can't believe I'm lost. Like, this is my home. I, I should know the way to be. I should know the way to go. I should know what it looks like. And I didn't even realize I was lost because I had so much confidence in being at home. That I, oh, I know where I'm going. And so sometimes we might be in a place where we think, hey, I know where I'm going, but if we're not taking the time to pay attention, if we're not um, focusing, if we're not even just aware of our surroundings, we end up being lost and not even knowing it until it's far, not far too late, but until it's much later than it needed to have been. And so what we're going to talk about today is the parable of the lost son. And as we do that, we're going to evaluate what it looks like when we know we're lost and what it looks like to be found. And then what does it look like when we're so confident of being at home that we think there's no way that we could be lost. But sometimes we can be lost relationally with God even if we're doing all the right things, but if we're doing them for the wrong reasons, or if we're doing them thinking that the right things save us rather than Jesus saving us. So as we dive into God's word this morning, Luke 15, verses 11 through 32, would you join me in a word of prayer as we get ready to feel and receive what God has for each and every one of us this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service this morning, whether live in person, live online, watching or listening throughout the week. God, I thank you that each person who hears my voice is someone that you deeply love, that you created, you formed, you shaped, and that you have here for a reason today. And God, I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you meet us here and that you can speak to hearts in a way that that no notes can, that I can't, but Holy Spirit, I know you can. So I pray that you would speak clearly. I pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, and that you would speak in a personal, powerful, and impactful way to each and every one of us. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So as we start this parable on the lost son, I want to give credit right off the bat uh, to two books that I'll be quoting um, throughout the sermon this morning. And if you have any desire to go further into looking at the prodigal son passage, the lost son parable, uh, I would highly recommend both of these. This one is The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nouwen, um, and this is a a painting that um, Rembrandt did. And it depicts the return of the prodigal son, and it shares a little bit of Henry Nouwen's um, journey of understanding more about himself as the younger son, which is obviously here. Imagine himself more as the older son, and then imagining the beauty it is to be the God, who, the father who is able to father people and welcome them back home. So it's a, it's a really beautiful piece. This one is The Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. Um, this is... This is probably within my top 10 favorite books that I've read, um, maybe top five. It's really, really great. And um, a lot of, the, again, a lot of the content that we will be talking about today will make reference to either one of these books. I just wanted to get that uh, communicated to you right away for further study. So what we're going to do is because we've just spent the past two weeks looking at Luke 15, 1 through 7, looking at the lost sheep, and then Luke 15, 8 through 10, looking at the lost corn, we're going to jump right into Luke chapter 11. Now, or excuse me, Luke 15, verse 11. Now, before we do, I do want to read verses 1 and 2 to remind us of the context and the reason for Jesus sharing these parables. Luke 15, starting in verse 1, it's not on the screen, but just listen along or follow along. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And it shows us that Because of the Pharisees' attitudes of looking around that Jesus was spending time with people who a self-respecting rabbi wouldn't, the Pharisees, the the leaders of the the culture, the scribes, the people who knew and were the religious, um, consistently religious and focusing on following God in all their areas of their lives, they were like, I can't believe he's doing that. So that's when Jesus starts pointing into the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin. And then in verse 11, as we look here, it starts here. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, in order to give the context here, I mean, one of the things we need to know is that, uh, or that's helpful for us to know, is uh, in the Old Testament had something that was called the law of primogeniture. That's not on the quiz. You don't need to remember that. But primogeniture, primo, which means first geniture in the sense of like genealogy. So it's the firstborn. The firstborn son would receive two-thirds of the inheritance. And so the way that this is being divided up is that there's the older son, younger son. Older son knows that he's supposed to be getting two-thirds of his father's inheritance. The younger son says, I want my share. I want my 33.3%. And what ends up happening is that in order to do this, and if you've heard this passage before, I know, friends, that if you've been to church before, that this is a passage that we're fairly familiar with. But as I mentioned recently, but from a quotation from Samuel Johnson, that people need to be reminded more often than they need to be taught. And so maybe we just need to be reminded of the beauty of this parable. So we know from a lot of us know this idea that when a a son were to say, I want my share of inheritance now while the father is still living would be akin to saying, I don't care about your life. I don't care about our relationship. It would be better for me and the way I want to live for you to be dead and for me to get my money now. It would be better for us, this relationship, to be so cut off and so separated that give me my cash because I want to live the way I want to go live. 
I don't want you telling me what to do. I don't want to have to wait until you die to get money. I don't want to have to wait and be able to live the life. I, w- I want to live my life now. I want to go off and do what I want to do, the way I want it, how I want it. And this is a younger son mentality, is a younger brother mentality is one that permeates not just our culture, but just our fleshly nature that says we want to do what we want to do now and how we want it, when we want it, and it doesn't matter what other people think. It's don't tell me how to live my life. But we see that this brazen comment to the father from the older son, or excuse me, from the younger son, the, the father would have been completely within his rights to just say, you don't, you don't care about me? You don't care about our relationship? You're cut off completely. You, 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 if, if I mean nothing to you, then why, not, not only why would I give you money, why would I even have a relationship with you? Because you clearly don't care. He would have been within his rights, but that's not what the father does. So the first part of our first point today is this idea. The younger son had to get to a point where he knew he was lost. So for us, what does it look like when you know you're lost? When you know, you are fully aware that you are lost without hope, or as Philip mentioned last week, that some of those four questions about worldviews, the idea of origin, where did we come from, the idea of purpose or meaning, what's our purpose, the idea of morality, what's the right way to live, and the idea of destiny, destiny, destiny is not a word, uh, destiny, where are we going? It's these main questions. Sometimes we're lost because we're without hope, and sometimes it's because we don't have the answers, or we don't seek the answers for those questions. And so, when you know you're lost, we start to understand where the younger son comes from. So let's read together Luke chapter 15. I'll read verses 13 through the first part of verse 20. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. In other words, he, had to, he got all the goods, all the livestock, and then he had to go and exchange that for money, right? So it's he got together all that he had. He put together all the things. He sold off all that property. He sold off all the livestock, got the money in, or got the the funds in hard cash, and then he decided to set off, verse 13, for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. The idea of wild living can also be like this reckless, this extravagant type of spending, and just saying, just going in and just money to burn, and just saying, it doesn't matter because this is all I want to do. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. And the younger son personality is someone who says, I don't want to have a Lord over my life. I don't want to have someone who tells me right and wrong. I want to determine that myself. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Sidebars, when it comes to someone who grew up within a Jewish culture, that pigs were one of the animals. Pork, it's not kosher, right? It's not something that is clean to eat. So this was an unclean animal, and it shows the degree to which he didn't just leave home in the sense of his father's household. It shows the degree to which he's left home as in a relationship with faith and with God and his word. Because he got to the point where he would not just be around pigs. It's not that he was eating them. It was he would feed the pigs. He would be in the muck and the mud and the mire with the pigs and the cleanliness factor that is so important in Jewish culture that we want to be cleansed and that they want to separate from anything that would be unclean because they don't want to be soiled, that he's just embraced because of his leaving home. 
He's embraced this idea of living off in a distant country, living in a way that was far from God, and sacrificing or forsaking the faith of his family growing up. So he's in the fields feeding pigs. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Not just was he hungry, he was so hungry that he was debasing himself working with pigs. And not only was he so hungry he was debasing himself working with pigs, he wanted to eat what the pigs ate. He was willing to figure out the leftovers of pig goop and say, at least that would fill me up. He starts to realize, verse 17, when he came to his senses, when he came to himself, when he realized how lost he truly was, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now, some of the commentaries that you'll read and some of the pastors that that I was listening to talk about how even when he decides to go back to the father's house, at that point, their perspective is that he still wasn't fully repenting in the sense of acknowledging. He was trying to still make a way that he could still earn back some of that money. He says, I know I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm not asking for inheritance again. I'm not asking to be welcomed back into the home. But could you set me up with someone that I could learn a trade, that I could be a hired hand, and that over time I can pay back the debt that I have incurred, that I can be the one that has to work to provide restitution and retribution for the money that I've wasted and squandered with wild living and extravagant spending. And so he's coming up with an idea of how he can do this. But one of the important things that he, we recognize, we've talked about this the past few weeks, when we get to a point where if God is over here, it doesn't matter how far we have walked in the opposite direction. When we turn back from him and we repent, which again, that just means to make a U-turn, to, to turn 180 degrees. And as we walk closer to the Lord, we draw close to him and he draws closer to us. So he decides... Um, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I will go out, set back to my father, and say to him, Father, I'm no, I've sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. He recognized how lost he truly was. He said, back in my father's house, I had food. Back in my father's house, I had the respect of, of being, you know, not like well-known, but known within the village. This isn't a huge village. It's not like... Oh, he's the one family, they're the one family who lives on one of the Bernardos. Like, this was a smaller village that people would know each other, right? And so he had the respect because his father had respect. And he squandered it all. Now, here's something that, uh, as we're learning, uh, this is something I learned about recently uh, as I was studying this. And it's a a ceremony called um, Kazaza. But before we get to that idea, Deuteronomy is very clear. Deuteronomy chapter 21 is very clear what would happen or what should happen if there is a son who is disobedient, who is a glutton, who is a drunkard, who wastes money. Here's what Deuteronomy says. He says, if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. 
You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. So here's the context. This is not just a coming home like, oh, he's, he's been gone for a while. It's recognized that as he's coming home, that he would potentially recognize that he might be facing his death. That it, the father, again, just as the father was in complete rights to cut him off completely when he asked for his inheritance, the father would be in complete rights in the idea of Mosaic law coming from Deuteronomy. The Torah says to go to the gates to bring him to the elders and say, this son of mine, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard, he's disobedient, he's rebellious. And God's law talked about, if that's the kind of son that you have, we need to purge the evil so it doesn't spread. So it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but him coming back to the village means that as he's rehearsing and he's walking back on the road, he knows that there's a chance that the father might see him it might run out to him. It might bring him to the gates of the elders and might sentence him to death. That's a possibility for this younger son in this parable. But let me give the context from Pete Hughes when in his book he talks about this idea of a kazaza ceremony. Can you say kazaza? Kazaza. Let's, let's try it again. Why not? Um, kazaza. Awesome. So... This is uh, what Pete Hughes says when it talks about this idea. And whether or not it's Deuteronomy or whether it's a kazaza, we'll start to see why the father did what he did. He says, if a son ever behaved in a manner equivalent to the son in Jesus' story, wishing his father dead by asking for an, an early inheritance, and then tried to return home to his father and community that he had humiliated, then the people of that village would give the son a taste of his own medicine. They would line up on the threshold of the village, and once the son was standing at that same threshold, they would take a clay pot and smash it at the feet of the returning son. This was a symbolic way of saying that the relationship between the son and the community was like the clay pot, broken and irredeemable. The word kazaza meant to cut off, and through this brutal ceremony, the son was cut off from the community with no hope for a return. So this is a big Deal, And the elders and the community members in this village would be looking out for the son. Not looking out for him to help him, but looking out to say, would he dare come back home? Is he going to dare to own the humiliation of recognizing that he squandered with reckless living, with wild living, extravagant spending, that he squandered not just the finances of his father, but also the good name of his family, and taking away from that inheritance to the point where now the whole community would be offended by it. And so the son is walking back, and he's approaching, and he's thinking, oh my goodness, I know, I'll say, I'm not worthy to be called your son, so don't treat me like a son would be treated in order to be either kazaza cut off or to be killed. Treat me as one of your hired men because I'm not worthy to be called your son and I'm not able to do that. So just let me serve, let me work, let me earn my own retribution and redemption. So that's when you know, that's when he realizes he's lost. Some of us, we realize that we have gone so far from the faith of our father. We've gone so far from the home that we grew up in when we learned about God, we learned who Jesus was, and we've gone off and we said, I want to live my life my way, the way I want to, and I don't want a Lord or someone to tell me how to live, that I want to live it up 
I want to have reckless living, wild spending, extravagant spending. I want to do what I want to do. I don't need a Lord to tell me how to live. But then we get to the point when we come to our senses, as verse 17 says, when we come to ourselves and we realize how far gone we've become. For some of us that have struggled with addiction, it's when we realize that we cannot get through a day and this bottle is destroying my life and our family. Maybe it's an addiction that causes there to be uh, such heartache and brokenness that a marriage is irreparably broken. A family is separated. Maybe it's something where we just recognize that I don't care about what God's word has to say because I don't want someone telling me right and wrong. And so maybe, maybe we've lived our lives thinking, I'll do the bare minimum to still be able to, to, to be around church, but in my heart, my heart isn't at home with the Father. My heart is living the way I want to live six days a week. And I'll, and I'll come and I'll worship God on the seventh, which again, we're glad you're here. But is your heart at home with the Father every day of the week? Or is it one hour out of the week? Some of us need to recognize when we've hit rock bottom, and we know we're lost. And so here's the good news. That when we know we're lost, when we, like, we, are, we are broken, we are far from God, we are without hope, there is no question about it. When we know, when you know you're lost, you know when you've been found. There is no question about that homecoming, about being found when you're as lost as the younger son so clearly and evidently is. When you're lost, you know when you've been found. Let's continue on verse 20, and we'll read through verse 24. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Some of the commentators and pastors say, notice that his speech was cut short there. He was no longer, when he sees the grace and compassion with which his father runs to him, which, uh, as, as many of us may know, many of us may not know, that running for a dignified man in that culture would have been shameful. The father is willing to risk his own shame to protect his child from experiencing shame. Jesus is willing to bear the shame of our sin, to become sin, so that we who were the ones who've sinned in the first place, that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we would no longer be put to shame. The father runs, risking the ridicule and the shame of his fellow village members, the elders of the land, and they might be looking, okay, let's get the clay pot ready. Let's get the kazaza ceremony started. Or they might be saying, okay, we might, if the father says so, we're going to have to stone this younger son to death because of what he's done. So they would be seeing what the father is doing and with bated breath being, what's, how's he going to respond? And which, what are we going to do? And how is it that we're going to make this right? Because of the way the younger son has completely disregarded the father. 
but he was filled with compassion. He ran to his son. And so when he would throw his arms around him and he kissed him, the son is saying, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He no longer has pretense that he could earn or deserve the redemption. He realizes he cannot pay the debt because he sees the father's love towards him. And the father's love brings him to the type of repentance that is beyond just, okay, I realize that I need to earn my way back to God. I'll, I'll turn back to him, but only when I have everything all together. Oh, I'll, I'll be baptized only when everything's good, and then I'll be baptized, as opposed to following the command to be baptized. I'll be able to lean into God, but only when my ducks are in a row and things are on my timing. Why? Because if that's us, then that means we still think, friends, that we are the Lord of our lives, and we are the ones that can present something perfect to God when Jesus is the one who presented his perfect self on our behalf. And so we get to this point where he no longer has a pretense of his own ability to redeem. He no longer has the pretense that he can pay back the sin. He just says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate picture this. I mean, this is, this is what's happening here. The reason why he's saying quick is yes, because of his overwhelming compassion for his son. It's also to make sure that if any villagers, any elders are watching this scene from afar, they know they're not getting the Kazaza clay pot ceremony now. They know they're not picking up their finest stones and polishing it for the stoning. They recognize that the father has welcomed him back in. He's put the cloak around him again. In order to say, you are my son. He's, he's put the ring around him, which is a signet ring, which is basically the idea of he can speak for the father. He is trusted by the father. And so it's the same idea that we would see from the idea of signature. It's his signet ring that is placed back on his finger. He has sandals placed on his feet because slaves walked around without sandals. But honored sons had protection for their feet. And he's saying, you are back in the family. He runs, he hugs, he kisses. And you could see, you could imagine that while the father is hugging him and bringing the robe and making sure that he's got the ring and the, the, um, the sandals, that people looking from afar would say, what is happening? Who is this God that they, or who is this father who is doing this to the wayward, rebellious, undisciplined, gluttonous, drunkard of a son? See, Peter Hughes continues on. He says, They, the villagers, were expecting the smashing of the clay pots, but there was no such mention. The Kazaza ceremony never happened. The father didn't pour out his wrath on his son. In fact, quite the opposite. The son was not humiliated because the father humiliated himself instead. We are told in the text of Luke 15 that his father saw him from a long way off, which implies he was watching and waiting. Instinctively, the father lifted his robes and ran. Why? Because if the people of the village got to the young man first, they would perform the Kazaza ceremony and cut the son off from the community. Driven by love and mercy, the father ran to meet his son. And so in this story, knowing so in this context, we can now pull ourselves out of the parable and pull ourselves into the context of the parable when there's the Pharisees and the tax collectors who are talking to Jesus and saying, how could he meet with these sinners? How could he meet with them? And, and they could learn from him and he tells the story of the lost the sheep and the lost coin. And, and then he gets to this point where he, the, the Pharisees would be saying, yes, 
according to Mosaic law, if this story is accurate, then the son would die or the son would be cut off in the community at the very least. That's not what happens. Pete Hughes continues on. He says, I imagine the crowd listening to Jesus was stunned and silent, probably thinking, what kind of father would do that? Which is exactly the point of the story. God is a good father, full of grace and truth. Through Jesus, he is on a mission to seek and save that which is lost. Friends, this is, this is such a beautiful idea. It's so beautiful to realize that when you realize yourself, when you know that you have been lost, you've ran off and lived the way you want to live, you've done what you want to do the way you want to do it, and you have the brokenness and, and that humility to have a broken and contrite spirit, a contrite heart, that that is a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. He doesn't wait for us to have it all together before we approach him again. We come to him with our muck, in the mire, in the mud, in the brokenness, and say, I know I can't do anything to deserve your love. I can't do anything to earn your grace. I can't do anything to pay for my own redemption. I, I can't. But then imagine the son who only a few minutes prior was, was rehearsing his, his statement, rehearsing coming back to the father. And as he's coming back and he starts to see that the father is coming towards him, he's rehearsing and maybe he's wondering what's going to happen next. And as he's embraced, as the robe is put around him, the sandals on his feet, the ring on his finger, do you think he knows that he's been found? He knows without a shadow of a debt that his identity as the son has been restored. His inheritance as the son is restored. He doesn't need to worry about whether he's lost still or what more does he have to do before he can truly be found. He just, in his humility and brokenness, has a contrite spirit. And because of that, the father welcomes him in and they celebrate with the fatted calf. And so, that's great. This is the story that many of us know, but what I would posit for us this morning is the idea that that's easier for us to understand the younger son, the prodigal son, the, the lost son. But the story doesn't end there, does it? We still have verses 25 through 32 to work through, and that's where we're going to land with the remaining minutes we have together because it's important for us to recognize this, that many of us know when we're lost, but there's also a time when we don't know you're lost. When I'm driving at night, I'm like, I know where I am. And I'm so familiar with my surroundings and I'm so familiar with the idea of being home that I don't even look up to see when did I get lost? Where am I? And I just keep driving until I realize, okay, there's something clearly wrong. But I didn't know I was lost for several minutes before that moment took place. What happens when we don't think we're lost or we don't even realize and know how lost we truly are? Verse 25, as we look through this section here. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, 
All these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Hear the hurts, the anger in that voice. Remember, the older son is supposed to have two-thirds of the, original, of the father's original wealth. Now, that two-thirds has been decreased by a third. And because the father has welcomed the younger son back into, into, the, um, into the inheritance, now that 66% that was originally there, now he's going to lose two-thirds of that in order to have it to make sure that the younger son has it. So now the younger son... He's going to be able to have the 33% that he had before. And then he's going to have the 22%, that's the one-third of 66%. So now the younger son is getting more than the older son is. And so the older son says, this isn't fair, Dad. I've done all the things you've asked me to do. I've kept all the checklists. I've never complained. I've obeyed all of your commands. I've worked hard and tirelessly. I've never once been able to celebrate with my friends, even for a young goat, a young kid goat, in order to celebrate. And you give the fattened calf to the one who squandered everything with wild living, with, with extravagant spending, and you expect me to come into the party to celebrate him? older son, the older son doesn't realize how lost he is. He even distances himself. He says, the older son referring to his younger son, when this son of yours, he's no brother of mine because he cut himself off, so I've cut him off too. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, see what the father does again. The older son says, this son of yours did that. And the father says, no, he's a brother of yours. He reiterates the relationship. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And friends, that's how the story ends. There's no verse 33 through 36 that tell us how the older son came back in and recognized the error of his ways. And he embraced his younger brother in the, in the hug that held years of tension, but they squeezed it out with a single tear dripping down one of their eyes. It doesn't show that they broke bread together and they said, no, you dip the bread first. No, you dip the bread first. It, it stops at verse 32. So why is that? We see here that here then... Timothy Keller says this. Here then is Jesus' radical redefinition of what is wrong with us. Remember, we think the lost are the the people who go out and do bad things. And the found are the people who are the good followers who do all the right things. Here's what Jesus says. Nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. But Jesus, though, shows us that a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors, the older son, can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most profligate, a moral person. Why? Because sin is not just breaking the rules. It is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge, just as each son sought to displace the authority of the Father in his own life. The younger son was the one who said, I don't need a Lord. I don't need someone to tell me what to do. You know what the older son mentality, when we have this, what it says? It says that if I keep all the good lists, if I do all the right things, God, you know what? I don't even need a savior. I'm good enough on my own. 
I can do all the right boxes. I could check all the right things. I'll go to church. I'll pray. I'll be in a small group. I'll serve. I'll give. I'll share my faith. I'm doing all the right things, but sometimes we can do all the right things and miss the right relationship with God that we've been created to have. And this is what happens. Timothy Keller continues on. He says, each one, in other words, rebelled. Each one rebelled, friends. But one did so by being very bad, and the other by being extremely good. Both were alienated from the Father's heart. Both were lost sons. We can do all the right things. We can be good Christian men and women. But if the relationship with God isn't there, if we do the right things so that God will owe us someday, God, you promised that, that if I do all the right things, you'll give me an easy life. He never said that. God, you promised that, or you, you said that if I do all the right things, that, that you owe me the answers to my prayers and the desires of my heart. So no, when we follow the Lord and our, we seek after him, the desires of our hearts come true, not because God bends to our will, but because our desires bend to his. And so each of us, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, not when we dutifully just work next to the Lord, not when we do all the right things and then ignore the relationship invitation with the Lord, but when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he'll give us the desires of our hearts. As Henry Nouwen says in that book, Return of the Prodigal Son, there are many elder sons and elder daughters who are lost while still at home. If I may extrapolate that a bit, there are many, and if I'm not careful, this is my, the one I tend to go towards most, the elder son, not the younger, but there are many who are lost even within the family of faith or within a church body because we think, I want, I want the benefits of what God can give me by doing the right things, but I don't want to always have the time to spend and invest in him. And that's not, for me, it's more the, God, I want to do all the right things because somewhere deep down, I've bought into the fact that if I do all the right things, you owe me an easy life. Or you owe me that things will go smoothly. Or you'll keep our family away from difficult times. As if God could be manipulated by our good deeds. And if I'm trying to be able to just do the right things so I can get the right things that I want... Is God my God, or have I just made myself in charge again and tried to find a different way to get there? If you are in that season, or if you are in that mindset, have you surrendered and humbly with a contrite heart said, God, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am not worthy to be called your son. Or do we allow our good deeds to make us think we are worthy? We can pay for our own redemption. We can do this on our own. Because this is the problem, friends, in the last couple minutes we have. When you don't know you're lost, you don't know you need to be found. You don't even know that that is something that you need. When you don't know you're lost, when you think, I have it all together, I go to church, I'm good. But if your heart is far from God, your physical location could be near him, but your heart could be just as far off as the younger sons was, if we're not careful. Timothy Keller continues on. He says this, 
You can avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the moral laws. And if you do that, then you have rights. God owes you answered prayers and a good life and a ticket to heaven when you die. You don't need a Savior who pardons you by free grace, for you are your own Savior. And then Norval Geldenweiss says this way, From the words of the Savior, it further appears that those who in their self-complacency imagine themselves to be righteous and spiritually healthy, the older son, will have no part in the salvation brought by him. But those who know themselves as sinners will find that he has come to call and to heal them. This idea of he who has been forgiven much, forgives much, he who loves much, or who has been loved much, loves much. It's the idea of when we realize the pattern of Luke 15, that it unlocks for us some of this weight. Now, there's a commercial that came out years and years ago, 2003, um, when it came out with the uh, Apple had a new, two new sizes of a MacBook. They had a 12-inch one, tiny, right? And then they had a 17-inch one, which was much bigger than usual. So many, maybe you remember this, maybe you don't, but the, the, uh, the commercial for it had Vern Schroyer, who's two feet tall and six inches, I believe, with a 17-inch laptop. And it had Yao Ming, who's seven feet tall, six inches, with a 12-inch laptop. So here's a picture of them that it shows, like, them inside the, the airplane. And they're, like, one of them, it's, like, so tiny because he's so tall. And for the other one, it's so big because he's smaller. And the reason this, this commercial works is because it shows us the contrast if the bigger, if, if, if Yao Ming, who's taller, had a bigger one, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's a bigger one. I, that's bigger than what I have. If, he, if Vern Troyer had a smaller one, like, yeah, he's, it's, it's what I have. But the fact that it's the opposite is what shows us the emphasis, right? It's the fact that the bigger one is with the smaller person and the smaller one is with the bigger person that we start to see just kind of the contrast and it points us to the point of the story. See, here's the question that we wrestle with. Why didn't Jesus finish the story and tell us what happened. It is because the real audience for the story is the Pharisees, the elder brothers, and we don't know how they will respond. Remember, this is the passage that we see or the pattern we see. Luke 15, verses 3 through 7. We see the sheep is lost. The shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the lost sheep. And when he finds the sheep, he binds them up, puts it on his shoulders, walks them home. The, se- the sheep is found. There's a celebration that takes place. Luke 15, 8 through 10 with the lost coin. The woman diligently searches, carefully searches for this lost coin. When she finds it, she brings it in, invites her friends over to celebrate that it has been found. And there's a lost, there's a found, there's a party. The parable of the lost son. We see that the younger son, he's lost, he runs off, should be cut off. We see that the father does go look for him. when He, he keeps an eye out for him. And then when he sees him, he runs in order to be willing to take shame in order to protect his son from shame. And then he brings him home. And he says he's found. And, and they have a party and a celebration. But which son does the father actually actively go search and plead to come home? He doesn't go to the distant country looking in every brothel, looking in every marketplace, looking in every pig's pen and say, is my son here? Is my son here? Is my son here? He leaves the 99 that are celebrating at the party to go for the lost son. 
he goes to the older son who thinks he has it all together. Why? Because in the context, it's the Pharisees he's telling these stories to. It's the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners that, are, as according to verse 2, are already listening to Jesus. It's the older brother syndrome Pharisees that are saying, well, how could he do that? And if he was respectful, he would do this. And there's no way he gets that because they can't understand the fact that God would shame himself to protect others from shame. And so they think they have to earn it, that they fast two days a week and they pray in front of the synagogues. They get credit for their external righteous acts. They are checking the boxes here and there, and they think that God owes them a good life, an easy life, answers to prayer and righteousness. But again, we don't have verses 33 through 36 that tell us how it ends. We don't get that moment where they hug and the tears and the bread and the embrace. Why? Because as Henry Nouwen says, unlike a fairy tale, the parable provides no happy ending. Instead, it leaves us face to face with one of life's hardest spiritual choices, to trust or not to trust in God's all-forgiving love. The reason the parable ends there is because if the parable ended with a happy ending, what would the Pharisees walk out with? oh, well, I can keep doing what I'm doing and earning how I think I'm earning and doing all these things, and, and eventually I'll be welcomed into the banquet. But instead, he's saying, the father says, everything I have is yours. You've always been part of my family. Instead of looking at what you don't have, can you be grateful for the relationship we do have? You don't have all your prayers answered and everything the way you want it, how you want it, when you want it, but you have me. He's asking us, can I, God, asking us, can, can I be enough for you? Will you allow me to be what matters most to you? Not through earning or deserving, but the fact that the Father gives himself away and he shows us his reckless, all-forgiving, unconditional, unearned on our part, love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we conclude our time together this morning, that as we think through this parable, this passage, this dynamic, Lord, many of us will, many of us will lean towards or, or find our own tendency to either be like the younger son who doesn't want a Lord to tell us what to do and goes off to live the way we want, how we want, when we want, and doesn't want any repercussions. Other of us, Lord, are ones who... Live as if the older son with a mindset, we don't need a savior because we could just do all the right things. So really, our sins aren't that bad. Or really, we don't need your help. We're good on our own. And that self-sufficiency that we think will sustain us actually reveals how lost and broken and confused we really are. So, Father, I pray that you would speak to each of our hearts this morning, and I pray that you would break down whatever walls, whether we're in the muck, the mire, and the mud of the pig's die today, or whether we are near you but not with you, where we are doing things for you but not loving you and receiving your beloved or your love for us as the beloved. May you bring us home. May we recognize how you are seeking and saving the lost. May we remember that the lost aren't just bad people who do bad things. It's all of us until we have a right relationship with you.
and as we grow in that relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.